Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. I've titled this morning's message, A Wedding, Lots of Wine, and a Great Big Sign. And this comes from John chapter 2. And as we think about what we're about to read, it is telling us of the very first sign that John presents that is teaching us that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, he was the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. And that's really the overarching purpose of John's gospel. We read about that in John 20, verse 31. And so as we read through and study this book, we're actually going to see that John organizes his narrative about Jesus around seven very unique, very powerful signs or miracles. And so the one that we're reading today is the first sign. And again, it's in John chapter 2. And so what I'm going to read, I'm going to do is just read the passage and uh, pause along the way and just kind of give a little bit of comment or narration. So let's pick up in John chapter 2, verse 1. And the scripture says, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. So let's pause there. Third day, we believe, just refers to three days after the previous events where Jesus was calling his first disciples like Philip and Nathaniel, and before that it was Andrew and Peter and John himself. So three days after that, three days after deciding to go to Galilee, we find out that Jesus and the disciples end up in Cana. Cana was actually a neighboring village of Nazareth. In fact, we believe that uh, if you just had the direct route from Nazareth to Cana, uh, the traditional site would only be about four to five miles. Very, very close in proximity. And of course, we know these sites are kind of debated. There are really four potential sites of where ancient Cana was, but the traditional site was very, very close to Nazareth, and I think was the accurate site. I've actually been to Cana. Some of you know that I took a little spiritual pilgrimage, and this was back in 2011, and it was actually a sabbatical project for me, and I took my son who just graduated from college, and we went to Israel and spent 25 days there, and it was kind of like a spiritual pilgrimage was part of the process, and we hiked what's known as the Jesus Trail. And it's like a 40-mile hike, starts in Nazareth and ends up at Capernaum. We'll read about Capernaum at the end of this story. And it's on the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, we were hiking that trail, and the second stop is Cana. And we actually spent the night in Cana in a little 
kind of a little hostel slash bed and breakfast there. And that city is all about weddings. It's all about wine. A lot of people actually go there even today from international folks even to get married or to renew their marriage vows. And, uh, and then it's also kind of known for its wine still today. And you'll see why in just a moment. So a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So there was this very important ceremony. And if you know much about Jewish culture and background, weddings were very, very important. They were huge social events as well as huge, hugely important events in the life of the couple and the couple's families. In fact, the way weddings happened, uh, as I understand it in their day, is they would actually start uh, in the evening, right when it got dark, the groom and his family and his friends would have kind of a torch-lit processional over to where the bride was staying. And if the bride lived close, which she often did, they would be going to the bride's house. If not, it would just be whoever was hosting the bride. They would go over there with this exciting, uh, exuberant, jubilant processional. When they got there, there would be an exchange of vows and promises and blessings, kind of like we have in wedding ceremonies where there are these... uh, Toast to the bride and groom. The families would make those promises there, and that was really the formal ceremony. Then after that, the bride would be escorted back to the groom's home and spend her first night with the groom, and then there would be uh, up to a seven-day feast or party or celebration in honor of the bride and the groom. And the groom's family would put on that, that social event for family, friends, and even the community. So there was this wedding that was taking place near where Jesus grew up in Nazareth in the neighboring village called Cana. Well, something tragic happens. Verse 3, it says, when the wine was gone. Okay, in these ceremonies, in these feasts, uh, wine was a big part of the uh, the festival and the feast. And it was really just a part of their culture, and it was a celebration. And so they ran out of wine. That means that very likely there were more guests that showed up than were anticipated. It was not uncommon for entire villages to come to these wedding ceremonies. Very, very big social event. And so it says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother, that's Mary, of course, comes to Jesus and said to him, they have no more wine. That would have been a huge social faux pas in their day, a huge embarrassment to the groom and the couple and the groom's family to have run out of wine. This would be one of those things that from this point forward, when everybody saw the couple in town, you would hear them whisper, you know, know, that's the ones that ran out of the wine at the wedding. So that's not a good thing. This would have been quite an embarrassment. Well, look how Jesus responds to his mother when she informs him of this issue. 
Well, first of all, one thing is he was, this may imply, because Mary is being proactive here, that she may have actually, this may have been extended family. Mary had family that would have been uh, on the groom's side of this, very possibly, or at least very, very close friends. And so she informs Jesus, and Jesus, look what he says to his mother. He says, woman, why do you involve me? And that sounds a little bit kind of harsh, maybe borderline disrespectful. But in the actual Greek terminology, this was not a, a phrase of disrespect in any way. It was just simply a way of speaking to her uh, without actually calling her by name. So it wasn't disrespectful. Jesus wasn't and would not be disrespectful to his mother. In fact, I think we see just the opposite. He says, why do you involve me? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, what this implies is that Mary knew exactly who Jesus was, and she knew what his abilities were, supernatural abilities. And, uh, but Jesus is kind of saying, wait a minute, I don't think it's the right time. My time has not yet come. And he will talk about that on five different occasions in John's gospel. He'll say, but it wasn't my time. He says it here. And then I love what kind of comes next. His mother says to his servants, do whatever he tells you. So his mother, Mary, completely ignores <laughs> what he just said. And the reason for this, I believe, is because Jesus must have been a mama's boy. And I say that with all respect and um, think that's a good thing. In fact, I myself am a mama's boy. Mama's boys respect their mothers. Mama's boys will often try to do what their mothers want them to do because they know that their mothers are usually right. And so, um, in fact, just a, a little side note, I can remember um, 35 years ago when I was dating this beautiful girl from Washita, and we were getting a little bit serious, and so I invited her to come to my home. I lived in the Dallas area, and so we traveled from Arkadelphia to Dallas for her to have a chance to meet my family. That's a big deal, of course, we know. Uh, the first time that um, you invite your girlfriend to come and meet your family, uh, that, that, was a, that was a rite of passage. That was an important milestone in any relationship. <clears throat> Mona was not the first girl that I invited home. But she was the last, okay? <laughs> As we finished that, that, that visit, we were heading back, walking out the door to get in the car to drive back from Dallas to Arkadelphia. My mom pulls me aside. And she said, uh, Scott, I really like her. And I said, well, Mom, I, I like her too. And she said, no, wait a minute. I really <laughs> like her. And in fact, I think we should keep her in the family. And so I said, uh, well, I agree. And so that's how Mona graciously accepted our invitation at some point. That came later, that she joined our family. 
Mama's boys understand that their mamas are usually right, and it's a good idea to do what your mamas say. Jesus, interestingly here, said, uh, nearby it says, there were six stone water jars. Now, if you go to Cana, they actually have lots of replicas of these these jars, what we think they would have looked like. In fact, archaeologists have found some of these, so we know exactly what they would have looked like. And they were huge. It says to us here, these jars were used for ceremonial washings. That may mean that this event was taking place in the Jewish synagogue, in the community, where these washings would have occurred. And synagogues were not only places where they would meet to study Scripture and have worship services, but also for community events. So that's very, very likely. But it tells us that these jars were so large that they could hold between 20 and 30 gallons. That's, that's really like if you can envision a, a modern-day trash can, the round kind, you usually put a 20-gallon trash bag. That's what those will hold in that, uh, that traditional size trash can. And for the ones that you actually have on the curb that the big trucks pick up, that would probably be more like the 30-gallon size. So that gives you some perspective of how large these jars were that would hold water. Well, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars, this is verse 7, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet, there'd always be someone appointed at a wedding to kind of emcee the events and make sure there was plenty of food and wine and other beverages that would take care of the guest. And so they brought it to the master of the banquet and he tasted the wine or the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Now what's interesting is that this is really kind of a private miracle. Who knew about it? Well, of course, Jesus and his mother, and we can assume that the, the bridegroom knew about this, or perhaps his parents, and the servants knew, and then later we're told the disciples knew. But the master of the ceremony didn't know, and the general public didn't know. This was more or less a private miracle, and what happens is everything gets turned around. Instead of this being a huge social embarrassment to the groom and his family, it becomes a huge compliment and praise to the groom and his family. You've saved the best till now. This was exquisite wine, apparently. Excellent wine, according to the master of the banquet. And then we get this comment in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. There it is. This is the first of the signs. There will be six others to follow in John's gospel. But the first of the signs through which 
he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And that's something to keep in mind as we go through the Gospel of John. These signs, these seven miraculous signs that John builds the narrative around are designed for people to understand his glory, who he really was. He is the one of the majestic one, the one full of splendor, the one full of supernatural power and goodness and grace and blessing, and we can go on and on. That's what glory means. And when we recognize who he really is, then we also must put our faith in him and believe in him and understand who it is that we are believing in and putting our faith in our glorious Lord and Savior. That's really what this whole book is pointing to. And certainly these signs reveal that. And then finally the story ends in verse 12. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. So again, Capernaum would have been around 40 miles from Nazareth, but from Cana it's probably more like 32 miles So they make that trek, kind of following the Jesus trail like my son and I did, and ended up in Capernaum, which is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And that's really where Jesus made his ministry headquarters when he started his public ministry. Peter eventually moved to Capernaum. We think Peter's home was actually uh, kind of the place where Jesus headquartered. If you actually go to Israel, we do have a a team of folks that are planning to go to Israel this spring, uh, you'll see Capernaum. You'll see Peter's house. Believe it or not, we actually believe, archaeologists believe, they found the actual house that has traditions that go way back to close to the first century. Uh, There were inscriptions written in this home because it had become a holy place uh, after Uh, the disciples and the life of Christ for the next several hundred years. So it's really uh, probably true. They found his home and they've built a church over the home. And one thing that you'll see if you travel to Israel, the, the Roman Catholics, the way they honor a holy site and a holy event is to build a church over it. And so they actually build a church over Peter's house We kind of, most of us as Protestants, wish they would just leave it natural like it was. But they put a glass floor in this church so you can look down and see Peter's house. So it's kind of almost the best of both worlds. You get to see it like it would have been, only there's a church sitting on top of it. So that's just how how that happens. But Capernaum is a significant place because it's where Jesus made his headquarters when he started his public ministry on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It says that they went with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. We do know from other places, we know that Jesus had four brothers. And we're told their names. One of them was Joseph Jr. One of them was Simon. Uh, One of them was James. And one of them was Judas. Four brothers and then some sisters that remain unnamed. And what's interesting is you read through the story, these brothers apparently did not believe in Jesus 
until after the resurrection. And we know then that James, who received a resurrection visit from Jesus, we think then became a believer and goes on to become a leader in the early church. Actually, the pastor, we think, of the church of Jerusalem. And he's the guy that we think wrote the book of James. So at the time, they didn't believe. We even see a story later in the Gospels where they come to the Sea of Galilee region and basically try to do a family intervention to get Jesus away and to stop saying that he was the, uh, the Messiah and the Son of God. So that's just kind of an interesting side note that his brothers and his sisters and his family and his mother all went there to Capernaum. Well, what do we learn from this? What are some of the kind of the takeaways, I think, for us? Let me just mention several here. The first thing is that Jesus has the power to give life. And that is because he is the Messiah and the Son of God. Again, these signs, all of them are going to point to those facts. And Jesus has the power to give life. And when we talk about the life that Jesus gives, it is absolutely the eternal life that those of us who put our faith in him can long for and look forward to and will receive. What a huge blessing. But it's also referring to life in the here and now. The life that Paul says is the life that is truly life. John later in John 10.10 says it's the abundant life. It's the best life there, there is. And he is, when we believe in him and we have a relationship with him, we also begin to receive that life right here, right now, because of this relationship. All of this points to the fact that Jesus is the life giver, the life sustainer. John starts his gospel with that is one of the, the big points about who this word is, which is Jesus. He is the life giver, the life sustainer, and that's what we look forward to. That's what we receive when we receive and believe in him. A second key point is that Jesus' gifts that he gives us throughout life come with abundance. Let's go back to this story of the size of these water jars. We're told that there were six of them, and they would hold between 20 to 30 gallons of water. Well, if we take kind of the lower uh, part of that, let's just say they were 20-gallon-sized jars. 20 times 6 is 120 gallons that, of water that eventually become wine. That is an enormous amount of wine. In fact, if you kind of do the math, that would turn into 3,000 five-ounce cups of wine. That's a lot of wine. It was an abundant amount. Now, we don't know how large the crowd was. We think probably it was more likely in the hundreds rather than the thousands. But there was an abundant amount of of wine to take care of a very large group of people for a significant amount of time. What does that say to us? I think it's just a principle that when we look to Jesus for provision, that he's not just going to give us barely enough. 
Some of you are looking to Jesus right now for provision for something in your lives. We should. He is our provider, our gracious God, our gracious Father, our gracious Lord. He will provide for us in whatever we need, whether it's financial, whether it's emotional, whatever it is, he will give us exactly what we need. But you need to remember, and this story I think even highlights it, that he will be gracious in his giving. There will be abundance of provision for what you need. His grace is absolutely sufficient for anything you need. Trust him to give with abundance. And I think the third key point that I want to just mention is um, with, it's on the issue of Jesus and the issue of drinking alcohol. Now, this is not the main point of this passage, but it always comes up when we talk about it because it is a related issue. And so the issue is, can Christians, that the questions often ask, can Christians drink alcohol? What does this have to, to say about that? Well, in Baptist life, we kind of have, uh, the way we approach this issue typically is don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> you agree with that? <laughs> it's been said, the story was said about, um, unfortunately, the Orthodox Jews do not recognize Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. It's been said that Protestants do not recognize the Pope as our spiritual authority. And it's been said that Baptists do not recognize each other in the liquor store. <laughs> so let's talk about this. I'm just going to kind of be transparent with you because this is an issue. You know, I think what we need to understand is we just look at the Bible the Bible, basically, both the Old and the New Testament, in, the, in their world, their culture, wine was a blessing. Uh, and it was a part of God's provision. It was always associated with joyful events, feasting. And it was life-giving, life-sustaining. In fact, wine was typically mixed with water uh, at meals because it had a purifying effect. And so it was just a part of their culture and their life and certainly a part of their celebrations. We do know that Jesus drank wine and it was fermented grape juice. We know that from places like Luke 7, 33, when he, this is what his enemies said. It says, for John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine and you say he has a demon. This is talking about the enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You say he has a demon. Then the Son of Man, meaning Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard. Which wasn't true. He wasn't getting drunk. But they were just claiming that. So we know Jesus did drink wine. Luke twenty-two seventeen. he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. It was wine that was part of the Lord's Supper ceremony. And so that's just really something we have to understand. Um, so if you choose as a Christ follower to drink alcohol, 
That is biblically acceptable. However, there are some very important guidelines and ground rules that we really need to keep in mind. The first one is that you cannot get drunk. It's drinking in moderation. Every time we talk about drunkenness in scriptures, it is part of a depraved lifestyle, a sinful lifestyle. In fact, Ephesians 5.18 says it very clearly. It's just one of many passages, but it says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. So if you choose to drink, it must be in moderation, and um, you cannot ever cross the line and get drunk. If so, it becomes sinful. We also have another principle that I think we should be reminded of. If you choose to drink as a Christ follower, you need to follow Paul's wisdom from 1 Corinthians 8 about not being a stumbling block. That's another consideration. And in his world, the primary context of that was about eating meat that had been offered to idols. And so they were, there were debates about whether we could do that or not. And Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 is that, because what would happen is that meat that had been part of an idolatrous ceremony would then be given to a supermarket where it could be bought on sale. And so there was a debate about could Christians buy that meat, eat that meat, or was that wrong to do because of its association with idolatry? Paul basically says, it's just meat. And he said, Yes, you can eat that meat. However, if it violates somebody's conscience that's part of your network, part of your circle, that's looking to you, then don't eat the meat. You do not want in any way to be a stumbling block. And that would certainly apply in our world today with folks that would think if you're in their setting and, and you're doing something wrong, then just... Just do not drink if that's, if, even if you do think it's okay. The other situation would be if somebody is a recovering alcoholic and you are around them. You absolutely should not drink in that setting because you in no way want to tempt them. So that's a ground rule. Do not be a stumbling block. And so I think that's what, if you choose to drink, I think that's the ground rules. If you choose not to drink, that's an absolutely good godly choice. In fact, we do have a few folks in Scripture that did make a spiritual decision not to drink alcohol. And it's, in fact, it's part of this vow called the Nazarite vow. John the Baptist, the guy that we read about in the previous section of Scripture here, we believe was a Nazarite, and that was given to him, or given to his parents by the angel Gabriel, said, don't let him drink alcohol or wine. And then we assume that John continued with that practice, and that's why the enemies, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, made that statement, for John the Baptist did not come drinking wine. So he made a spiritual choice to not drink. But here's the ground rules for, for those who make that decision, and that is be sure and not be self-righteous about it or judgmental. If you choose not to drink, that's a good choice for you, but just know that others may make a different choice. But let me also say one final thing here, and that's really to our young people. 
we need to understand that these decisions are for fully mature adults. And it's vitally important that we follow the laws. Those laws are in place for a reason. And I will tell you that alcohol abuse can be not only dangerous, but it can be deadly and very, very destructive. That's where the sin comes in, and that's where it can really wreck a life and a family. And so it's very, very important as young people that you understand that this is a choice as a Christ follower that can only be made when you are a full mature, uh, mature adult and of age. So absolutely know these ground rules and follow them. Well, there you have it. A wedding, lots of wine, and a great big sign. If you're here today and you've not made a commitment to Jesus, commitment of faith and belief, that's what this whole book is about. And this is a very simple but life-transforming decision, profound decision. It's really a simple prayer that you can just ask of the Lord and just say, Lord, I believe, and I want to commit my life to following you. And if you sincerely make that your prayer, then you begin to receive the life, the abundant life, the best life possible that leads to eternal life. If you're here today and you've not yet made that decision, you need to make it today. It can be your day of salvation. And if you do make that decision, please, after the service, let me know or one of the staff know, because we really want to pray with you. We want to come alongside you and begin helping you grow and live out that decision in a way that honors God. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast. If you don't already have a church home, we invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.